We can go ahead and be seated. I'm going to invite you to open a copy of God's Word uh, to John chapter 14. We've been going through the Gospel of, of John the last nine months or so. We come to, to John chapter 14, perhaps uh, one of the more familiar sections of John's Gospel this morning. In this world, you will have trouble. Those are not my words. Those, those are the words of Jesus. Jesus says that later in John chapter 16, he, he spoke those words to His disciples. In this world, you will have trouble. And I doubt that anyone would try and make an argument against that. I doubt anybody would argue against that and, and say that life is actually filled with uh, balloons and pony rides and hopscotch and everything is always perfect. You know, I know, that in this world, we will have trouble. The reality is there's never a shortage of things to be anxious about. There's never a shortage of things to be worried about, to be depressed over, to be sad about. I mean, we struggle uh, with financial difficulties, there's the brokenness of relationships, there's, there's marital issues, there's failing health, there's depressions, there's worries about the future. We feel sadness and the pain of having lost people. In this world, you will have trouble. And today, if you are troubled... If, if you suffer from having a troubled heart, you're feeling confused, there's concern, you're overwhelmed, then the reality is you're in a good place. Because in John chapter 14, we have some of the most hopeful and, and life-giving words that Jesus has ever spoken. So in the context, Jesus is with his disciples, they're, they're in the upper room. He's there with the remaining 11, the 11 of the disciples who were true followers, who were believers. And Jesus is preparing to leave. It's, it's time to go to the cross. It's time for Him to be betrayed, arrested, on trial and crucified. And so He's preparing them for this farewell. We call it the farewell discourse. And, and to be sure, this is troubling to them. They've given up three years. Three years they've been following Him. They've, they've left their jobs. They've left their families. They've left everything they've ever known. They've endured ridicule and mockery and shame to follow Jesus. They've, they've listened to the promises. He's talked about a kingdom. He says, I'm building this kingdom and I'm inviting you into this kingdom and it's, it's going to be great and you're going to experience all these things. And, and now Jesus is saying, I'm going to leave. I'm going to go and right now where I'm going, you can't come with me yet. And so they're troubled. They're wondering what they're going to do. They're, they're perplexed. What's going to happen? There's, there's confusion. There's questions. There's uncertainties. But Jesus speaks to them. He assures them. He comforts them. And He gives them the cure for a troubled heart. Now, I want, to keep it, I want you to keep this in mind. As we read the words of Jesus, as He talks about the promises, it's not just for the future only. You see, certainly there's this initial comfort 
that, that people receive when they put their trust in Jesus for salvation. And there's, there's this future aspect to it. I mean, 2 Thessalonians, Paul talks about this, this comfort that is eternal. And there's this, this comfort that will culminate in the new heavens and the new earth and the life to come and the, and the life spent with Jesus in eternity forever. But what we must not neglect is that these words also provide a comfort now, in the present. In the midst of trials and difficulties, you can experience the comfort of God now. And that's why David in Psalm 23, the famous psalm, he says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You can experience it now. There's help available now. Perhaps you've heard of Corrie Ten Boom. She was famous in, during the World War II for, for hiding Jews, her family hiding Jews in their house to escape the Nazis, and, and she was arrested and put in a prison camp, and a concentration camp where most people were executed. And, and there were times, she wrote about afterwards, times when, when she would look at the difficulty of her circumstances and say, Lord Jesus, I know that this problem is way too big for you. I'll have to worry about it myself. And then she would stop. She would pause and smile and say, how foolish. I mean, the reality is that we are often confronted with issues and troubles and struggles. And with them, we think there's no help. The burden is too great. We think nobody can help us, and yet there is nothing too great for God. And so on the night before Jesus' death, uh, the Lord Jesus addressed the remaining 11 disciples, and this is what he said to them in John 14. He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, do you know him and seen him? Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. 
when everyone else in the world is justifiably troubled, when everyone else should be anxious and worried, the follower of Christ has an unseen reservoir of resources. The, the follower of Christ possesses something so great that it allows there, instead of fear, to be faith. Peace instead of perplexity and composure instead of crisis. We see that in Jesus' words because here he gives us the cure for a troubled heart. You can trust Jesus and you can trust his words because he secured a future destiny for us. That's the first thing we see, that, that we can trust him because he has secured a future destiny for us. Jesus begins in verse 1, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Now as you read that sentence, there's two things that are just readily apparent. First off, we can affirm the fact that there's trouble. His disciples were already troubled. And, and the word trouble means to shake or to stir. And so make no mistake, here they are shaken to the core by the fact that Jesus is about to leave them. But the second thing that's readily apparent is the fact that this trouble can be overcome. I mean, if it couldn't be overcome, Jesus wouldn't have wasted his breath to say, let not your hearts be troubled. Troubled heart can be conquered. And, and perhaps after this you expect, you know, Jesus to give a silver bullet to solution to all your problems and the cure he says in the next sentence is actually quite simple, probably more simple than anyone would expect. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. It's that simple. Believe in God, believe also in me. There's two commands in that sentence. The focus of these commands is that the disciples need to continue to do really what they've already been doing. Now what Jesus isn't saying to them is believe in me for the first time. No, instead he's saying, you have believed in me, now you need to keep believing, keep trusting, and keep relying on me. The antidote for anxiety, for trouble, for so much more is to trust in Jesus. It's not found in emotions or experience or anything else, but to trust in Jesus. Now remember, he's in the upper room. These are his disciples he's been walking with. They've, they've believed Jesus. They've trusted him. They've given up everything to follow him. And so Jesus is saying, you need to keep believing not just now, but even after I'm gone, you need to keep trusting in me. Jesus knew that many of his disciples, not just these 11, who believe in him for salvation, then, then struggle to believe in him in the day-to-day -day things. And as a result, a lot of disciples, a lot of followers of Christ, suffer unnecessarily with with a heart of trouble. And so Jesus is, in essence, saying to him, you must believe that I'll never leave you. you. You must believe that I'll never stop praying for you. You must believe in my sympathy. You must believe in my comfort. You must believe in the Holy Spirit that I'll give to you. It's, it's a matter of when, not if you have a troubled heart. It is simple belief in the right object, Jesus Christ, that will sustain you. The cure for a troubled heart is to believe in Jesus. 
to trust in him. And maybe you're looking for something more, something new, something, something novel, something that you've never heard of before as, as the cure to all your problems. But the reality is this is the simple solution to a troubled heart. In fact, look at it this way. When we're experiencing a troubled heart, experiencing anxiety, frustration, confusion, doubt, sadness, we might stop and ask ourselves the question, in what way am I failing to trust in Jesus? In what way am I doubting in His provision? In what ways am I doubting His goodness? In what ways am I doubting His care? In what ways am I doubting the fact that He has promised to believers this great inheritance? He's promised all of these things. In what what way am I failing to believe and trust in those things? I would argue that's at the root of so much of our trouble. Now knowing what they needed, Jesus turns their gaze to the glories of heaven. To the glories of the future. He, we can trust Jesus because he secured a future destiny. Look at what he says in verses 2 and 3. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. So if you're to have a mental picture of this, don't think of it as separate dwelling places scattered around as if, as if the glories of heaven is going to be like a subdivision with track homes. No, you think of it as as rooms added on to the Father's house. A dwelling place where the rooms are added on to the dwelling place of God. Because in this, what you don't want to miss is the sheer intimacy that is promised with the Father. It will not be merely in the same vicinity, the same town, the same neighborhood. He says, in my Father's house, there are many rooms. Sinful human beings, rebellious human beings, who have been reconciled to God, will then experience an intimacy with the Father that is, that is nowhere to be experienced right now. It's unparalleled. And I think if we step back for a second, when we think of heaven and we think of salvation, so oftentimes we think of coming to Jesus Christ as our ticket to heaven. Just a ticket merely out of this life, out of some misery, and into a place where we can enjoy ourselves. But what we miss is the sheer fact that in this place, the goal is not simply to escape this life. The goal is not simply to escape our troubles. The goal is to be and to dwell with God, to have unhindered communication with Him, to have nothing in between us and Him, to enjoy Him forever. It says, in my Father's house are many rooms. The Father's house is another name for, for heaven. Jesus is telling His disciples that they can have confidence that Jesus is going to prepare a place for them in heaven. Jesus is heading to His Father's house. And when a son heads to his father's house, he's going home. He's returning home. And Jesus is now saying, my home is becoming 
your home. I'm preparing for you a new and different and better home. And in case you're unsure, Jesus is talking about a real place. He's not talking about an imaginary place, a fictitious place. He's not talking about a place that just exists in a state of mind, as some secular people would argue. But he's talking about a real place created by God for his people to dwell with him forever. Now imagine that when we hear the phrase, I go to prepare a place for you, you might conjure up this idea that Jesus is merely uh, building it. I mean, after all, he was a carpenter here on earth, so maybe he's a general contractor in heaven, and he's been spending 2,000 plus years just getting everything ready, the trim, whatever he's putting all the final touches on. But the reality is the rooms are ready. The preparation is done. The preparation he's talking about is not with hammers and nails. The preparation he's talking about is through death. A preparation that comes through the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ to this dwelling place. This will be prepared for us, but it will only be prepared for them through the work of the cross. Because without the cross, there is no room for us in the Father's house. There is no dwelling place for us with God forever. Now, if all of this is true, if we can rest assured, if we can, if we can experience relief from our troubles by believing in the future destiny that God has ordained for believers, the place that Jesus has prepared, then why is it that we waste so much of our time trying to make our home here? I mean, if there's a time that's coming when Jesus will take us with him, as it says, shouldn't we yearn for that? And, and isn't the 70, 80, maybe 100 years that you'll live here rather temporary? in comparison to eternity? I mean, didn't Paul say that we're citizens, not of this world, but we're citizens of heaven? And yet, if you look at our priorities, if you look at how we spend our time, if you look at our energy and, and, and the goals of our life, so often they do not reflect a fixation on the future that God has promised for believers. Now, let me give you just one Reason why I think that, that this yearning for heaven is so diminished. There's many, but let me just give you one. I, I think we can sometimes have an unhealthy attachment to earthly things. Maybe they're good things, but they're distracting things because we're attached to them. They be, become idols. We become consumed with them. And so, listen, we can grow so attached to the things of this life that heaven actually doesn't sound appealing. And, and some of you might know, when life is at its worst and when you have very little, oh, does heaven sound appealing? Does the future sound appealing for God's people? We, we can spend so much time consuming the empty pleasures of this world, that our appetite for the feast that's promised in eternity really doesn't sound all that appetizing. And so what we need is the right perspective. 
I mean, the things that we enjoy in life, rest, vacation, friendship, sports, leisure, all of those things are not bad in and of themselves, but we should only immerse ourselves in them so long as they whet our appetites for the eternity that is prepared for us in heaven, the, the satisfying joys of heaven. You see, if there's anything in your life that, that makes you learn, yearn less for the glories of heaven, perhaps it's not a thing worth pursuing. Listen to what Randy Alcorn says. He's written a number of books on heaven, very helpful. He says, many assume heaven will be unlike earth, but why do we think this? God designed earth for human beings, and nearly every description of heaven includes references to earthly things, eating, music, animals, water, trees, fruits, and a city with gates and streets. The Bible speaks of a new heavens and a new earth, not a non-heaven and a non-earth. New doesn't necessarily mean fundamentally different, but vastly superior. And so if you have this image that heaven is boring and that our time there will be spent on clouds and harps and halos and just uh, floating, I would encourage you to look at what the Bible actually has to say about the glorious future because it doesn't, doesn't talk about any of that. It talks about a vastly superior life. One that is superior in every way a place where there is no sadness and no sorrow, there is joy. And the reason why there's so much joy there is because, again, not because we escape this world, but because what we have is Jesus. We have unhindered fellowship with Jesus. And so there's no reason why the simple pleasures of this earth should do anything more than leave you wanting more. Something vastly superior. Because nothing that you can experience here will compare to the glories of heaven. And in verse 4, Jesus assures his disciples, and you know the way to where I am going. He basically says, hey, after all this time I've spent with you, surely you know that I'm going to the cross. I've, I've talked about it over and over and over again. I've been alluding to the cross for three years. I've been telling you that I have to go there. I've been telling you that there will be a time when this is happened, when, when I'll be lifted up, when I'll be betrayed, when I'll be dying on a cross, and you have to come to grips with the fact that although I now speak of going to the Father, I'm going via the cross. And then Thomas speaks up. Thomas says something, and you know, Thomas is not the sharpest tool in the shed. But we have to give him credit for speaking up. He's not afraid to ask what some might think is a silly question. So Thomas speaks up and he says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Now, we don't want to be hard on him, but Thomas isn't connecting the dots. I mean, Jesus has told him over and over again what he's doing, where he's going, and, and Jesus so then replies in verse 6 with one of the most famous statements ever in all of Scripture. He said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I mean, this should have been obvious to them after all this time, but Jesus has to come out and say it. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father through me. This is uh, the sixth of the seven I am statements that Jesus has made in the Gospel of John. 
Statements about himself, statements that, that reveal the nature of who he is, statements that reveal that he is one with the Father, and this is a clear statement. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus alone is the way to God because he is alone the truth about God, and he alone possesses the life of God. Now, maybe you've heard a different message than that. My guess is that all of you, at some point or another, have heard somebody say, well, all roads lead to the same mountain. All paths lead to the same place. It doesn't matter what you believe, it just, as long as you believe something, we'll all get to the same place. Now, that might sound rather tolerant, if you want to redefine the word tolerant. That might sound really loving and accepting and just really, you know, great for everybody. But, but when you think about it, to say that there's no exclusive way to spend eternity with God, to say that there is no one right way is a really intellectually dishonest assessment. Because that in itself is an exclusive statement. And so we must look at the context, the contents of what the claim actually is. And, and here, Jesus gives us the way to the Father unlike anything else. We have the ability to spend life with the Father, and yet it's not by our works, it's by His works. He does on our behalf what's needed to be right with God. There's no other religion, no other system of belief that can ever claim a gospel of grace like that. And so God can only be approached through His Son, Jesus. He's the door of the sheep. Everyone else are thieves and robbers. There's no other way to the Father. Sincerity does not give you access to God. Being a good person does not get you access into the kingdom. The only way to be reconciled with God is to have a relationship with Him, to spend eternity with Him, and that can only be done through the cross. By believing and trusting in the sufficiency of His work on the cross. So simple. I was reminded of it this morning um, at the breakfast table. We Right now we have this thing at the breakfast table where we have just a little devotional book and, and, and as we're eating breakfast, you know, we read from it and we talk about it. And um, This morning it was talking about the thief on the cross. And if you remember, Jesus is crucified and here you have these two thieves and, and one of these thieves, um, he says to Jesus, will you remember me in paradise? And now if you think about it, this thief, he probably murdered someone. He probably committed a very heinous crime. He probably wasn't a good guy by anyone's standard. After all, they're crucifying him. And as he's nailed to that cross, he actually has no time to make up for it. He can't get down and do any good works. He can't do anything that would merit salvation. In fact, he's done everything. If you were to say there's somebody going to hell, it would be that guy because he's probably done something horrible, horrible to get off on that cross. And yet Jesus says that he'll be with him in paradise. Because what's required of us 
To be in the kingdom of God, to be reconciled with God, is to see our own sinfulness and how much we've fallen short, to see our need for Jesus, to see Jesus for who He is, and to trust in the fact that in His death, He's provided a way for us to be reconciled with God. And so He's done this on the cross. And so you and I, we can, we can have our troubled hearts settled because we can trust that there is this future destiny for us. It's not just an escape from this life, but it is a life with God. But secondly, we can trust. We can trust because He's revealed the Father's glory. In, in verse 7, Jesus continues His response to Thomas. However, His words are not directed towards Thomas alone. Jesus used uses the plural verbs here to show that he's speaking to all the disciples. He's speaking to them. He's speaking to us. He says, if, I had, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Three times. Three times in this verse, Jesus uses the word know. And the word is used in the Old Testament sense, which, which speaks of not just this intellectual understanding, but this, this personal, intimate Relationship. The way you might say, I know my spouse. Jesus is saying that you've known me and you've known the Father. He says to his disciples, you've never come to really know me since you, you lack an intimate knowledge of me. You don't really know the Father. However, in the beginning of this book, he said, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This is why Jesus can confidently say from now on, you know him and you've seen him. In other words, he's saying, if you've seen me and you know me, then you know God. And the simple reason is because I am God. I'm God in the flesh. I'm God who's come down. And and so he says this, and then Philip decides to chime in. And Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and that is enough for us. As if Jesus didn't already say that he's revealing the Father to them. Jesus just finished saying that he is God, but Philip isn't satisfied. And here I think we see something about the longing and the need in humankind to get a glimpse of God and experience his reality. So show us God and we'll believe. Show us him, and that'll, that'll quench every doubt that we have. And Philip is sort of a materialist. He wants, he wants the tangible. He wants what you can touch. He, he doesn't want to just think in theological abstractions. He wants something that he can see and touch. He wants concrete evidence. But what Philip doesn't understand is that no one's seen God. It's beyond human capacity. You remember, you remember Moses. Moses asked God that he, he wanted to see him. He, he asked him on the Mount Sinai, and and God refused. And there's this desire in humankind that we just we want something we can see and touch so desperately that it causes us to fall into idolatry and see and touch and pursue things that aren't God. And so Jesus is being patient with them. In verse 9 he says, Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? These, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works of themselves. 
Jesus is the, the image of God, the exact replica of God. To see the Lord Jesus is to experience and see God the Father. That's why he urges his disciples to believe in him and his words. But he says, hey, if you can't do that, at the very least, at the very minimum, believe in the works that I've done. Walked on water, I've fed thousands, I've, I've, I've raised people from the dead, at least believe in these things. Jesus can make these promises. Promises of heaven, the reality of the place, the exclusivity of the path to heaven, for one simple reason, He is God. We can trust Him because He's God. But also there's another reason why we can trust Him in the midst of all. We can trust him because he makes a promise. In fact, he enables us to live for him. In the midst of our troubles, in the midst of our insecurities, in the midst of our anxieties, and and, and all of the things that we struggle with, there's times when we doubt our ability to even live the Christian life. And yet what he tells us here is of great comfort in the midst of that. Jesus is not withdrawing from them. He's He's not leaving them so he can though relax and you know, sit at the right hand of the Father, really do nothing. Instead, what Jesus is doing, he's going ahead of them. He'll continue to actively work in them. He's going to heaven, and from there, he will supply with them infinite resources. The power he will supply them with will be seen through what he calls greater works and answered prayers. And what he promises to them here is what he promises us. Look at what he says in verse 12. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Now, when I was a teenager and I read those words, for the longest time it just confused me. That Jesus would say to his disciples, you are going to do greater works than me. It doesn't make sense at first. I mean, to say to his 11 disciples, and that to be applied to us, that we'll do greater works than him. The one who believes in me, though, is is the key. He doesn't say it about everybody. He says that the one who believes in me, and we stop and we think about it. We don't recall the disciples turning water into wine. We don't recall them feeding the the 15,000, however many were there. Or we don't recall them raising people from the dead. Hence, the greater works here do not refer to greater in degree but perhaps it refers to greater in extent. Think of it this way. Perhaps what Jesus is talking about here is, in one sense, geography. Listen, one historian wrote it this way. Think of what Jesus, in the days of his flesh, had actually done. He'd never preached outside of Palestine. Within his lifetime, Europe had never heard the gospel. He had never personally met the moral degradation of a city like Rome. Three years was his public ministry. But then you look at his disciples and they've spread the gospel around the globe. In another sense, the the greater things is to the extent of geography. They've taken the gospel beyond Palestine. And Jesus, uh, well, he dealt with mostly the Jews. And then you think about the disciples. and, And the disciples have now taken the gospel not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. 
Now think of the greater numbers as well. You get to the book of Acts and you have just a few dozen disciples meeting in a room, but then you get to chapter 2 of Acts and you have 3,000 people added to the kingdom in one single day. So perhaps the, the greater things is also the greater numbers. And all of this happens because Jesus Christ releases His Holy Spirit for greater things in and through the church. And the Spirit's power will not only be seen in greater works, but also be evident through answered prayer. Look at these last verses, 13 and 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. I had a nickel for every time somebody ripped this out of context. Jesus says, if you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. He promised to answer their prayers. Now, in one sense, we could just read that in isolation and we could approach prayer like Aladdin's lamp and ask whatever you want, and it'll be given to you. But notice here, Jesus gives a qualifier. In verse 13, he says, Whatever you ask in my name. Whatever you ask in my name, that will be answered to the glory of God. To pray in Jesus' name is not to recite certain words, but to pray in line with His will. It's to pray with an understanding that the request you bring is one Jesus would sign His name to. It's a request that, if answered, would show the world who God is and what He cares about. Hudson Taylor, the famous missionary, used to say this, I, I used to ask God to help me. Then I asked God if I might help Him. Finally, I ended up asking Him to do His work in me and through me if He would be so pleased. And that's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. See the riches of this passage? I mean, in the midst of all of their troubles, their troubled heart, Jesus promises a place called heaven. He gives them a path to heaven. He also gives them the power from heaven. He gives them these great promises. He's secured our destiny. He's revealed the Father's glory. And He's promised that He's going to give us every single thing that we need to live for Him. It's, it's almost like an engagement ring. With the ring comes excitement. Excitement for the day when the bride and the groom stand face to face at the altar, exchanging vows and finally becoming one. When you look at these promises, there's an excitement for the day when we'll stand face to face with Jesus. And in the fullest sense, finally enjoy the pleasures Spending eternity with Christ. And yet all of these promises come after one single command, that's to believe in me. I mean, these promises are only for people who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ alone. You don't need to rely on yourself because He's the way. You don't need to live in uncertainty because He's the truth. And you don't need to fear death because He is the life. So wherever you may be, the cure to your troubled heart is to believe. Jesus to keep believing in Jesus. 
Father, we pray for, for in the midst of our struggle, whatever it may be, not just a momentary relief, but what we pray is that you would help us to overcome our unbelief. If we doubt your goodness, if we doubt your providence, if we doubt your care, if we doubt your promises, what we would ask, Lord, is for the simple resolve to keep trusting in the sufficiency of your Son, Jesus, for all of our needs. And if we've never done that before, would we do it today? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.